On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at how half of sales leaders say their CRMs are costing them in lost opportunities, if bots can make salespeople more productive, and how female salespeople are 23% less likely to be offered financial bonuses versus their male colleagues, and a whole lot more. My name is Will Barron. I'm one half of this show. The other half, sales legend, sales legend Rich Antonio, joins me via the power of Skype. Victor, how's it going, sir? It is going good, Will. As you know, I just got back from vacation. Uh, I relaxed. I tried to reflect on my life. I even tried to reflect on this week in sales, and I said, you know what? I think I'm still liking hanging out with this Will Barron character. <laughs> he irritates me once in a while, but all in all, I mean, he's a good guy. So I said, let's do it again. That's what I came back with. How's that? Well, I... After pondering on it, I'm glad that that was the conclusion because it'd be awkward <laughs> me just speaking to myself on this show each week. Uh, clearly, th- clearly, this show works best with both of us. And Victor, I want to, I want to wish you a very happy as we record this today. I want to wish you a very happy Marching Music Day. Oh, well, great! Really, it's, it's also I like this National really? Grammar Day as well. Grammar Day and Marching Day. Two and things one at more. one time. Like, uh, and okay. one more. Tell me, I don't know if this translates across the, uh, the the ocean that separates us. National Pound Cake Day. Like pound cake? Yeah, we like pound cake here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so pound cake, pound cake, grammar day, and marching day. It's incredible, right? How they just keep assigning days. We should have it this weekend, sales day. Let's well, just make it up. I, I like it when it becomes um, whatever it is, month. Or I guess the, the Chinese have it down best of the year of the dragon or the year of the goat and, and all these different things as well. So we will just my go favorite, for the... The monkey. The year of the monkey yeah. is my favorite. I don't know why. I've always loved monkeys. So I love that bet. Cool. I think my birth year is the year of the tiger. Uh, my partner, her birthday was some like really rubbish animal, so she was very disappointed in that when we uh, when we last uh, kind of uh, it was at a museum that we were looking at it. But with that, Victor, let's pull it back to sales. We better add do before we let's lose all this. the audience here. And let's start off with an article from staffingindustry.com that says with the title: Only twenty three percent of P two P sales reps say they sell as well virtually as they do offline. Is that is that an unreasonable number that just hits you before we dive deeper into the, the, the content here, Victor? I find that number to be very reasonable. I, I think that's within the range of what I would have thought of. Yes, I like that. One out of four, essentially. Yeah, because I think one out of four people are naturally going to be suited to uh, doing business online, just whether they are more, they love technology, like you and I do, as we just chatted before we click record about the the studio equipment and all that side of things. And the three and four probably just want to stick with the status quo and do what uh, has worked for them in the past. So research by Gartner sound that 23% of B2B sales reps believe that they are equally as effective selling virtually as they are in a live on-site selling tr- uh, online and a live on-site selling situation. Gartner's survey included over a thousand sales reps. And the point, all of this back, this issue with selling online back to sales managers, which we could discuss in a second whether that's fair or not, or whether salespeople should take responsibility from some of this. But they say, Gartner, the three root causes for sales managers' struggles on coaching virtual selling include, one, an inconsistent coaching culture, two, inexperience with virtual selling, and three, coaching skills. Oh, no. I'm getting all this wrong. One, inconsistent coaching culture. Two, inexperience with virtual selling and coaching skills. And three, a lack of investment in coaching technology. Now, Victor, out of those three, mate, I can take, go through them again if we need. Which one of those do you think is the real, uh, the real crux point, the, the real thing holding back salespeople from learning how to sell virtually? Number two, inexperience with virtual selling and coaching skills. I would say that one. That makes sense because everything else follows that, right? That's exactly what I thought when I saw this post because how can you invest in coaching technology if you've not got any experience in the the new wave selling that we're trying to uh, trying to put in there? And I guess the inconsistency in coaching itself, well, that's something that's easily solved by just booking a meeting every Friday, every Monday and getting the, uh, getting the coaching booked in the diary, right? That, that one seemed kind of weak, actually. By the way, this inconsistent coaching culture. All right, fine. By the way, who, who is this? Doug Boucher? Is that how you pronounce his name? Doug Boucher, senior director analyst in the Gartner sales practice. So we should uh, shout out to Doug Boucher. I wonder if Doug Boucher questions some of this data. For example, number three seems like a real wanker excuse. <laughs> Lack of investing in coaching technology? What the heck does that mean? What the hell does that mean? Well, 
What do you mean lack of lack of investment in coaching technology? How much coaching technology do you need? It's called Skype. I think it's free. Zoom, I believe it's free. So tell me, tell me, Mr. Boucher, what are you talking about? What do you think he's talking about, Will? As you say that, Victor, there's some irony here, right, of selling virtually <laughs> is a load cheaper, a load easier, loads less friction mm. potentially. All you need is a, a calendar so that people can book a meeting in your diary mm-hmm. and either Skype, Zoom, whatever it is to connect with people. Maybe you need a little bit of a, a microphone or a headphone upgrade so that you can your communication is effective via the internet. But yeah, there's some irony here saying that you need a ton of new software to put this into practice when to sell virtually, to communicate virtually, to do what we're trying to do here. You just need to show up, right? I don't know. I think I, th- I think Doug Boucher fell short on this one, man. I'm I'm calling him out. <laughs> you know, come on, Gartner. Come on, you can't put stuff like this down on paper. Lack of technology and investment. Come on. Yeah. Anyway, that one irritates me. I don't know why. Well, but it irritates me. Well, we'll see if we can get a reply from Doug. And I also I love to have the I love to think that <laughs> Doug is English and his surname is actually Doug Bush. Doug Bush. You don't pronounce the double e? Maybe. But maybe after uh, 20 generations of, of being English and, and it gets like croissant. Do you call it a croissant, croissant. or a croissant? Croissant. We say croissant because we're, you know, we're, we're like Neanderthals here. <laughs> it's not. I know it's croissant. You know, croissant. that whole thing. Yeah. Croissant. Sorry. Uh, but Doug Boucher spells it with a double E and then he has the audacity <laughs> to put an accent over the first E. And then he wants to complain about coaching technology. I've got a There's question for you, Victor. Here. Yes, sir. Do you know the shortcut to get that apostrophe over the E on your computer? Yes, I do. I think you hold the E down on a Mac and then for two, three seconds and it shows you the different options. So I'd have no idea. I would literally have had to, if I was working with Doug, I'd have to go and copy and paste from his initial email every time I wanted to uh, write his name out. Well, I had to learn it because, uh, you know, when I do stuff in Spanish... Okay. That's how I had to kind of learn how to do that mechanically. So I was ready for you on that one. Okay. And on anything one, else on that one, Will? I've got one final thing I'm going to test you on this. Do you know how to do an umlaut over an AU? An uh, umlaut, is that the double the double dot, right? Is the umlaut. Correct. Correct. Over a U. I think you hold the U down. <laughs> it can't okay. be that simple. I feel like... It I is. Like... Man, the Macintosh has fixed this for you, and it gives you different options. Sure. It like, can't, go ahead, do it. it. Can't, well, I'm on a Windows computer here, but it can't just be hold the U down because you'll just get right, 27 I'm, U's. I'm going to test it. By the way, I'm going to test it right here, and hopefully I won't screw things up here, but hold on. Let's see. Hey, it's not showing it in the Word document. Oh, there we let go. Me if, wait a minute, let me, hold on a second. Hold on a second. There's the E. I'm going to type an E. Oh, yes. Yeah, on the bottom. Okay, so bottom screen, I got set. Let me do the U again. I didn't see it. They show yeah, at the bottom. So bottom right, left-hand corner, it gives you the four options. So I have for the U, I have the, the umlaut. I have things I can't even, I don't know, some other mm-hmm. type of symbols above the U. But I got five options, and I just hit the number one through five to get the option I want. It's that simple. Well, there we go. In a world where products are being commoditized, we're now shipping everything globally, and we're all communicating globally, Victor just taught me how to uh, write people's names appropriately. Uh, it you know what's mind blowing? You know what's- if you didn't use that, wouldn't it? I think it would, but you know what blows me away is that, you know, before we got on this podcast, you were showing me all this wonderful technology you have on your side with the studio, and you don't know how to do an umlaut. <laughs> I'm just like shocked, surprised, stunned even, well, stunned. Stunned, Anyway, I'm even stunned that Gong decided to hire an EVP. Let's talk about that. Gong, Revenue Intelligence Platform people. Gong. The people who have purple, yellow, and red on their website. Who are these folks? So gong.io, if you don't know who they are, look them up. Gong adds former Tableau EVP Kelly Breslin a right to board of directors to support massive growth. Can you smell it coming? I smell it coming. Uh, Here is the announcement. Gong, the revenue intelligence platform, leveraging AI to transform revenue teams, announced today that Kelly Breslin Wright has joined the company's board of directors. Now, there's a reason I wanted to highlight this one. Wright is uniquely positioned to help Gong in its next chapter. You hear that, Will? Next chapter, with her prior experience leading companies through multiple stages of growth, from initial go-to-market traction to global expansion to... Oh, there it is, those three lovely letters, Mm -hmm. expansion to IPO. That's where Gog is going. She spent 12 years at Tableau Software, where she started as a company, as the company's first sales hire, 
rising through the ranks to become EVP of sales, heading, heading lead, what is it, uh, helping lead the startup through an IPO and an 850 uh, to $850 million in revenue. I wanted to highlight this because I think Gong is just one of those companies that's a little one degree off center, and I mean that in a good way. They think differently. And I think this company is going to go IPO. This is, this is, it's coming well, and I think they brought her in to kind of say, look, you've, by the way, I also like the success story here. They hired her, and I love this part where she started at Tableau Software as a company's first sales hire. I love stories like that. I love one of those, I was frontline, I'm moving on up to the east side type of thing. So congratulations to Kelly. You go, girl. You took the words out of my mouth. That's what I took away from this story. Uh, I'm less interested in Gong and the, the corporate expansion and taking over uh, the world. And I'm more interested in that story. I think that's really valuable for the audience to see that you can go from frontline salesperson to uh, v VP of sales in a, and go through an IPO and drive hundreds of millions in revenue. Impressive. It's a success story, right? And the article from PRNewsWire.com, it continues, and I thought this was interesting as well. This is a quote. Gong continues its industry momentum, serving over 1,700 customers. I thought there'd be more than that, so we'll come back to that in a second, mm -hmm. which represent 75% of, and, they, and I assume they're saying Gong represents 75% of the revenue intelligence market. That's a big number. And that is an IPO number, right? If you own and dominate that much of a particular market segment. Yeah, I, I like. I, I'm a fan of Gong. Like I said, ever since I interviewed the uh, the CEO Amit Bendoff, and I think you've interviewed uh, Chris Orlob. Um, I think I, he's their product I, manager. I Chris years ago, and I've interviewed uh, the CEO okay. as well. But this was both okay. years and years ago now. Yeah, so they're 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 moving, man. I I love. I think I like this company. I just keep my eye on them because they're so different, and they're so. Have you seen some of their new promotions? Some videos they put online. Uh, and you could tell they have a different corporate culture. And I really, I really, you know, you, you, you know how people say they have a corporate culture? I think Gong shows you their corporate culture. So I, I think it's a cool company. I really think it's a cool company. And again, Kelly, congratulations. I think you landed well as part of the board of directors. Make it happen. I think there's real value, just to stick on this point for a second, of being a mm -hmm. cool company. Because I see with the mm -hmm. Gong employees that all seemingly more, and HubSpot do this as well. HubSpot have all their employees and staff on LinkedIn have the orange background. And I see Gong, they have this duotone where it's like a purple to blue fade or purple to green fade, whatever it is. They tend to have these backgrounds on LinkedIn. Now, if I hated the organization I worked for, last thing I want to mm -hmm. do is brand my LinkedIn profile with the organization. <laughs> but I see it both from HubSpot and I see it from Adrift as well. Drift.com do this. Um, and mm. LinkedIn do this as well with some of their own internal reps. I feel like that is a, relatively good indicator of how engaged and how interested you are in the organization that you work for and fundamentally how cool it is if you're willing to throw on the the brand's colors all over your your own profiles i think that's a great point that's a great it's a real subtle point but it's a great point you're right right if you really care about the company and you're ready you're really part of the culture you're carrying their battle flag in everything you do and everything you show online so good point for sure. And for this article, for all the links, for everything that we're talking about, head over to thisweekinsales.com. And Victor, I've got it there before you. Usually you get yeah. all three of those those uh, <laughs> plugs in before I even remember it, even though it's sat in the dock staring at me every week. And with that, maybe we need to automate the uh, plugs and the adverts that we do internally, just like B2B sales can potentially be automated because we're asking the question here in this article from diginomica.com. Can bots make sales reps more effective? So this is coming from Oracle. Now, we by the don't... Way, by the way, I just, Go on. I just want to interrupt and say that that was a great segue. That was a great segue. That was not well bad. Done. We're getting better. That We're getting better. Cheers. <laughs> now, now, you ruined the segue by interrupting me. We were doing great until that sorry, moment right ahead. there. Maybe they're just so shocking usually. I'm, just, I'm shocked that you actually did a great segue. I'm like, damn, that was a pretty good segue. I guess I got to tell them. I should have held back. I'm sorry, man. It's the it's my ADHD. It kicks in once in a while. It has to interrupt. Sorry. Go ahead, Will. So Go ahead. This, this comes from Oracle, right? And am I? do you think I'm fair in saying that we talk about Oracle far less than we talk about Salesforce, HubSpot, um, Microsoft, all these other large enterprise organizations? Is that fair to say that we talk about Oracle far it's less than It's fair to say that we don't talk about Oracle enough. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe because, what's the guy's name? What's the uh, owner's name? The guy with the always, you know, funding these big boats and these big yachts and uh, Larry Elston, I think yep, I'm guessing correct. right now before you can get it. And so, yeah. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to give Oracle more love. You know, but Oracle's one of these companies that, you know, they're in the background and they're doing, that's where the magic happens, if I can say it that way, in everything that's out there in, in technology. So I think it's interesting that we're talking about it. So good point. Let's talk sure. Oracle. And, and the, re the reason I asked that question is, they, clearly they do a gazillion dollars in revenue every year. They're as big as these they other companies that we talk about. But I think you're right. I think they are in the background. They're, they are doing infrastructure that other technologies are built upon. And fundamentally, especially in the enterprise space, they are used all the time. So maybe we need to, or maybe I need to, if I could take responsibility from this, maybe I need to take a little bit more look and, and care and attention at their blog. Because that's um, where some of this came from. So this is from diginomica.com. So Rob Tarkov, is the EVP and GM over at Oracle is talking about Oracle's new digital assistant. So he says, Oracle CX Sales Mobile, a bit of a mouthful, now includes an embedded AI-guided digital assistant to help you get more done even when you're away from your desk. And the point of the the AI here is to help um, front office. It says front office in particular it, for a B2B seller should be a lot more automated. So I guess that's booking meetings, the back and forth that can be done and automated in a chatbot uh, scenario. And he also talks about this idea of codifying a sales rep. So I'll quote again, there is a way to codify the practices that make a good sales rep and expose that to everybody. And you do that through a predictive engine that says, I've looked at the data and I've seen what successful reps have done before. Here's a suggestion. Here's the next logical step. Here's a piece of content that's performed super well, like a reference story. Now, Victor, my question to you, sir, is can you codify, put aside non-complex B2C sales for a second, complex B2B sales, can that be codified? Can, with enough data, enough time, enough processing power, is it really possible to codify the human interactions, the emotions, the negotiation, the branding, whether something's cool, all these kind of things that lead to a complex B2B sale being completed? I think Rob Tarkoff, EVP and GM of Oracle, has been sniffing too many data fumes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> too many data fumes here. Uh, by the way, I, you know, so joking aside, I mean, I can see that you say there's a way to codify the practices. And we get, maybe I would insert the word codify best practices. Sure. Like what are certain things that they're doing that are consistently showing up in all the successful sales uh, processes slash win rates? I would agree with that. What are some of the best practices? But to codify the salesperson, I don't know. I don't think we're that close to that yet. But I would, I would insert the word codify the best practices that make a good rep. And I think that's what he meant. So let's give Rob the benefit of the doubt. Sure. So I had uh, an author called Brian Christian, a researcher as well, on the sales podcast this week. So it'll come out probably a month or two months from now. He's the author of Algorithms to Live By. And on the conversation I had with him, he's an expert in the, the decision-making process of a computer and the decision-making computer of humans. And computers do some things way better. Humans do some things way better. And I posed him this question that we've pondered on on This Week in Sales before, Victor, of could Salesforce, Microsoft, Google is the example that um, Brian kept coming back to. Could Google create a software platform, a software marketplace where everything is on there. Gong is on there. Chorus.ai is on there as a competitor. The pricing is on there. And Google will implement the software for you. They've got enough data, enough data centers. They'll run the software. They'll do all the, the, the legwork for you. And you just go on one click. It's installed. You can start using it. I asked him if for complex B2B sales, that would ever happen. Essentially, can we get, can we codify the sales process and put it onto an online form and allow buyers to take uh, to not have to speak to salespeople and and to give them enough information to so they can make these complex um, high stake purchases and he wasn't sure I was convinced he was going to say yeah in the future someone like Google with enough data can do that mm -hmm. and he genuinely wasn't sure and it comes down to the fact that where's the trust in that do you trust mm -hmm. Google to do all of this for you maybe some people do some people wouldn't um, obviously, Google will have a vested interest in getting you to buy through their platform, like the App Store over Apple, the shenanigans that's going on, it's going through the courts at the moment of should there be other app stores available on the Apple iPhone on, on iOS? Apple say no, because they can keep tight control of the Apple App Store, make sure that there's no nonsense going mm -hmm. on within the apps, no spying, no, um, no spyware, no adware, no uh, kind of hacking or anything like that. But they take a 30% cut for that privilege. So uh, Brian was suggesting that seems like 
Google could put together some kind of enterprise B2B marketplace and have third-party apps on there, third-party uh, software products would be the easiest one to implement. Uh, but he wasn't sure if there was the level of trust and then the other human buying emotions, whether they would stop people from actually purchasing from it. That's why I enjoyed this article. and um, That's kind of my conclusion of, can you codify B2B sales? It's not down to codifying B2B sales. It's down to whether the buyers want to buy from a bot or a human. I agree with you. I mean, look, I mean, let's take your studio for an example, for example, which I love. The you have if if you can program AI to figure out what pieces need to go into studio, it could probably figure out what pieces would go into a studio, but it couldn't be as creative as you are in terms of coming up with different ways of using the tools or the equipment. It wouldn't know certain things that I guess movements, adjustment, it's just too much to codify and expect a machine to predict that. And I, it's a simple example, but when, when, every time I see statements like this, like it can codify something, I'm like, really? You know, I don't think we even know, understand our own brains. Because I, I think there's an error, Will. And, and I, 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 maybe I, I'm totally wrong here, so I'm gonna go on the edge again, one more time. Is that we have this arrogance that we think that we understand the human brain and we see it as a neural network, right? <clears throat> But, be, but it's more than just a neural network. Can we mimic a neural network? Of course we can. Can we mimic the complexity of the subtleties of each cell within that network? And the answer is really no, because we don't know that much yet. So like anything else, we can go up to a point, but in this case, I would say, yeah, you can mimic or codify the best practices. That's not going to ensure you that you're going to win the deal, obviously. But we keep getting closer though, Well, right? We keep, we keep moving the marker downfield, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And and the issue of a lot of this is that humans make stupid mistakes that computers clearly don't, unless they're programmed too. So again, in, and we'll wrap up this segment with this, but the, the interview with Brian, he said that they've done experiments where they'll give humans a data set and they'll give the computer the same data set as the human. So they don't allow the computer just to go and find essentially unlimited information and make better decisions. And a lot of the time, humans make very similar decisions to the computer when all the data is laid out in front of them. The main thing that stops humans making as good a decision, um, which is an objective decision as opposed to subjective, they're not asking whether something's cool. They're asking, for example, uh, is this a good investment, for example? Um, so the human can do maths. The main thing that stops the human doing as well as the computer in the decision making is that humans get bored and tired. That is the biggest barrier for um, mm, humans making decisions. So from a B2B buyer's perspective, it could be that They've just consumed this content. They've seen uh, Victor all over uh, sales.org and they've seen Victor on your massive YouTube channel and they just go, hey, I need sales training. I can't really be bothered going too in-depth with all of this. I like Victor. Uh, what I've seen is great. We'll just go with him. Whereas a computer, I I'm not saying that there is a better option than your mm -hmm. sales training, but a computer might take in other variables and go for a longer period of time to make a calculation. I might end up in the same place. But as I said, the one of the biggest burdens for humans and the buying decisions is just the fact that inherently we're lazy. Inherently, your job is a job. You know, you're not. You've got other things to do in your life, and uh, that's the the main things that tend to affect and, and differentiate human decision making from from bots and, and that side of things. I think there is such a thing. Well, there is such a thing as decision fatigue. You just can't mm -hmm. decide anymore. Anybody who's bought a house or has to go shopping for furniture has reached a point of decision fatigue. Like, I can't think about this anymore. I'll just take that one. It's not the optimized choice, and the machine just doesn't get tired. So I can see where that works. I can see where that works. All right. So I want to talk about something a little different. I decided to check out what those can crazy Canadians are doing up north. Amid rise in remote work, Dooley, D-O-O-L-Y. Only a Canadian would come up with a name like that. Dooley announces $25.5 million Canadian dollars funding to scale sales enablement platform. Now, I just thought I'd throw this one in there because we I've never heard of Dooley, but I like what they're trying to do here. And I, I'm, oh, I'm dying to get your opinion on this one because I think it's going to be interesting. According to Salesforce's 2019 State of Sales report, the average salesperson spends 34% of their day selling. In other words, two-thirds of their day is dealing with administrative or other things, not sales activity. So Vancouver-based Dooley has raised $25 million Canadian, $20 million U.S. in funding as the company looks to scale its sales enablement software, which aims, well, to reduce the administrative burden 
on sales professional. What a mission, Will. Dooley touts itself as the fastest way. Here's why I definitely want you to really pay attention, Will, because here's why I want your feedback. They tout themselves as the fastest way to update Salesforce, take notes, and manage deals for sales professionals. The startup software is designed to act as a connected workspace, allowing Salesforce to sync notes across systems like Salesforce and Slack, updates account quickly. Their mission, again, is to automate administrative sales tasks for sales teams. What do you think of this, Will? It's one of those... <laughs> it's one of those... Va- right, so that's a value proposition, right? Yeah, if- yeah. If they're doing what they're suggesting, then great. Now, mm. I, I think I can read into some of this. Clearly, I've not used the product. I can read into some of this. For example, do you know, are you familiar with otter.ai? Otter, no, I, I'm not. So they will um, automatically transcribe uh, your Zoom calls. They're integrated fully into Zoom. And oh, in the you call, said... you can highlight stuff and, and pin it and come back to it. So you By can the do way, some let me, of let me help our. I want to help sure. our listeners out. He meant to say the word otter. But what he said otter. 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 See, he meant otter, as in the animal <laughs> otter. Yes, I'm familiar with otter. Yes, go ahead. By the way, otter is a great program. Yeah, so I, we use it for the, the transcriptions for our show notes of all the shows that we use uh, over itself selves.org. And this show as well, the, when we do um, oops, when we do transcriptions here as well. So um, the, the, the one of the big value pitches or value propositions of otter.ai is uh, the ability to in real time, transcribe the conversation that you're having, pin bits of conversation so you can go back to it and create meeting notes on the fly. Now, over time, they're going to be able to hopefully suss out what was important, what wasn't important, whether there was pauses, when people are pondering on things, uh, whether something was a question, perhaps due to the uh, whether the tone goes up or down in the, the, the wording itself. And so they can build out perhaps a list of questions that need to be resolved after the, the meeting. So I assume that Dooley is doing some of this itself. And if it is, then great. That's really cool. But I find that a lot of these, I find that a lot of, whether it's to do with sales or out of sales, whether it's video editing, whether it's whatever production we're doing, a lot of tools suggest that they're going to solve all these problems um, fall flat on the face in my experience because the, the problem is there because it's important to do. So there's software that will say, we'll edit your video automatically. Well, it always comes out crap and it's not as good as paying someone um, to edit a video. So I, I would have to use this, experience it. And if I have to go back over everything and double check it after it's been done, then what's the point in uh, it's kind of spe- speeding up the process in the first place? Great that was, point. That was great a negative spin, though. That, that was very negative. If it's great, I'll be all over it. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, it, you know, it's, it's funny because when we look at technology stack, when we talk about technology stack, this is stacking technology on top of technology. And I'm like, well, why hasn't Salesforce or Slack, you know, come up with this already? I mean, they got 20 million to spend US. They can do this themselves. So how is a dually coming in over the top? That, that's my, that was my question. Now, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're from Dooley, you know, we'd love to hear you, your feedback, get your take. You can correct us and we'll be able to talk about it on the next This Week in Sales podcast. And where do you go to leave your feedback? Go to thisweekinsales.com. I've got two things to mention here. Slack, which we'll come back to in a second. Mm-hmm. But you also, every time you said Canadian, you said it in a Canadian, as if there's, there's a, it's the stigma towards the Canadian dollar versus the, the US dollar, Victor. There's some issues between the U.S. and the Canadians. There's some issues. We're, we're, we're obviously much better people than they are. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, by the way, Canadians and people from the U.S., in case you're international, you're thinking, is he really serious about that? The answer is no. We just like to give we're, – we're like cousins or brothers you know, you're and sisters, right? We just give each other a hard time, A, eh? Like they would understand what that means. So anyway, good people up north. Good. Um, and, and Slack, I didn't put it in the doc this week because this was news uh, perhaps a couple of weeks ago, but there's – have you been following the Slack acquisition by Salesforce and what Salesforce are proposing for Slack? No, I have not. Okay, Please so share. I've one, not. Of, one of the things that they, they're seemingly really focused on, and obviously it has to exist, we have to use it to make sure uh, that it's not just like kind of hyperbole, is they want to create essentially rooms for buyers and sellers to engage. 
And then all the content from that room then goes straight into Salesforce CRM and is leveraged internally within their own platform products and services that they can offer. That is one of the main reasons for acquiring Slack. It's the technology and backend to create these rooms, to create these conversations, and maybe Salesforce is equivalent to Zoom, uh, to Skype may come via Slack video in the future. So that's what I've been reading up on. And it seems like there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with the acquisition rather than just buying a chat app that people use to chat internally within organizations. Man, I, I hate to give Salesforce some credit here, but that's pretty clever actually. I never looked. I would never have thought of that. I never looked at it that way. That is a that's a very clever approach. Mark Benioff, well done. Because yeah. clearly it was a crazy expensive uh, purchase, but with Zoom having so much attention with the media, and it, clearly it was the darling of the pandemic, growth wise, organization wise. Perhaps Zoom would have been what they would have acquired prior, but it's just overpriced now, uh, and maybe Slack was appropriately priced in the marketplace. Weren't you talking smack about uh, this purchase a while back? Weren't you the one talking like you were down on it? So. You were talking no, a little smack. Uh, maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't understand the just, the numbers. Behind I'm just it, messing right? with you. I'm just messing with you. Salesforce makes some weird. No, no. Salesforce makes some weird acquisitions, um, but yeah. Slack was definitely not one of them. All right. Yeah, I, I think we we actually found articles of, of people who actually said like four or five years ago that. Salesforce should buy Slack. I think that's what we reported on this week in sales. So, well, good for them. I think that's a, that's a, that's a brilliant move. For sure. The virtual rooms with the customers, have that information, port it over into the system. Wow. I like that. That shows, I mean, God, I'm really wrapping my brain around that. That's like, that's beautiful integration right there. Well done. And and Slack has a, as a brand, right? When we're talking about things being cool before, Slack was used and picked up by startups. It is cool as a, as a product and a service. Mm -hmm. um, we've experimented with Slack internally, works great, but the, the logo has value in its own right as well. So maybe people, uh, here's a different spin as well. So Slack is used internally, you know, across organizations. It's not very specific to sales. Maybe if Salesforce spun up Salesforce chat, buyers would go, well, mm -hmm. I don't want to jump into this chat and just get sold to, this is awkward. Where they go, oh, I, I understand Slack, we use that. And so maybe just that mm. brand differentiation has a value in its own right as well. Of Buyers will go into a Slack room and they may feel like they're more in control of the sale. It's a meeting as opposed to a sales call. Maybe there's value there as well. Interesting. Good viewpoint. Well, talking about CRMs, Victor, this is a good transition. Half of sales leaders say the failings of their customer relationship management CRM platform are leading to lost revenue opportunities. Now, uh, this comes from sugarcrm.com. So clearly some of this is uh, maybe loaded. Well, or... it, just read that headline again. Half of sales leaders say the failings of their customer, the CRM platform are leading to lost revenue opportunities. No shite. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, of course it is. You know, right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got ahead of you. So I'll just run through some data points from this um, this this post over at sugarcrm.com, which we'll link in the show notes, which you can find over at thisweekinsales.com. Over half, 52% of sales leaders reporting that their CRM platform is costing potential revenue opportunities. Half of companies surveyed, 50%, said that they cannot access customer data across marketing, sales, and service systems. Nearly one-third of the customer data is incomplete out of date or inaccurate. 53% say the respond 53 of the respondents say that the administrative burdens of the CRMs causes friction for the sales team. Victor. So it's basically half of organizations hate CRM. <laughs> that's that's the know, conclusion from those numbers, right? The, the, yeah, the, the the irony. I mean, do I do I have to point out the irony here that sales leaders are complaining that their people who they are leading are not using the tools that they purchase for them. Ergo, sales leaders are responsible for the lack of initiative or accountability. So how can sales leaders sit in the throne on the throne of judgment when they themselves should be judging themselves for their lack of ability to actually get people to use it and maintain the data integrity at the same time? Amazing. That was my conclusion as well. Me? So clearly it's not it's not as simple as what I'm gonna say. But if you're not happy with your CRM system, it's losing you deals and revenue. Change your CRM system. Now, clearly it's not as simple as that if you're a massive enterprise organization and you've been using some legacy half in-house built CRM for the past 25 years. It's, it could be a two-year project to uh, transfer from one CRM to another. So I, I flippantly say it, but that's what we need to come down to. That's what we need to come back to, right? Of 
sales leaders need to take responsibility for some of this. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's, this is just making me mad more I keep thinking <laughs> about this thing because it's like, <laughs> it's like, if your CRM is losing you money, first, quantify how much you think it's losing you. Yeah. And if that creates, and that number should tell you whether you have a sense of urgency or not. Instead of, I mean, 50% of sales, those over half, 52% of sales leaders reporting that their system is causing them revenue issues, right? That's how many people should be fired. 52% of sales leaders out of the study should be fired because you shouldn't be complaining about your system. You should be touting how well it's working for you to grow your business and grow your sales. I believe if I asked your board of directors, your shareholders, that's exactly why they hired you. Am I being too hard, Will? Am I just being too hard on these sales leaders? Nope. I don't think uh, so. Nope. I don't, I don't think, think so at all. So. Now, this data isn't from uh, – this data is across a, a decent period of time. It's not like in the past week something's happened with CRM systems that's uh, kind of triggered all of this. This is uh, over the course of a couple of years, I believe, over at sugarcrm.com, and the kind of reportings here. So, yeah, it's, it's not like – but, this happened at the beginning like, of the global pandemic. It's not happened. It's not like there's just a big bug at the moment that's causing all these issues. People are sitting on these issues for long periods of time. I have a I have a very nefarious thought right now. Could Sugar CRM could, could Sugar CRM just really be touting this so they can sell their CRM? Could that be? In other words, you know how companies fund their own studies to find quote unquote new conclusions. That coincidentally fit with the products that they offer. Could that be it also, Will? Well, just throwing it out there. To be, if you're being negative, I'll be positive. To be fair, on okay. the the study page, they don't mention a competitor. They don't say other CRMs have this, 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 and this. They're just talking about CRMs uh, in total. So some of their customers might be included in some of this data as well. Okay, we're going to give Sugar CRM the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> but really. Let, 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 let's put the focus back on these sales leaders who are whining. That's the word we should use, whining about their CRMs. Do something about it. Shut there's, up. There's, there's two final data points from this study uh, not related to CRM. Well, somewhat related to CRM, but I thought these were interesting. 57% of respondents said that they have trouble predicting when customers will churn. And even in hindsight, 48% of those surveyed said they don't know why customers have churned. This, to me is relatively alarming. Maybe global pandemic, people are going to churn. You can account some of it to global pandemic. Mm -hmm. But you sh mm -hmm. does this show that we're just, does this, maybe this isn't a sales issue. Maybe this is customer success or whatever we want to brand mm -hmm. uh, customer, um, customer service as, as we move forward and companies move to SaaS models. So you have to keep them, people on board engaged over years to kind of earn the, the revenue that was spent on marketing to, to onboard them in the first place. Is this just a lack of contact with customers once we've sold them, sold to them? And is that perhaps the future of sales? Because if you can reduce 57% of your churn, immediately your company's worth probably not double, but even multiples on double the amount of uh, what it's worth right now. Oh, I agree. It, it, it presents an interesting, I'm going to be positive here. It presents an interesting opportunity for companies Maybe CRM companies that can, that can help predict this stuff, the customer churn. Because I think I read one study, was, I think it's a Harvard study, that if you uh, improve your retention by 5%, it drops to the bottom and improves your profit margin by 60, 70, some percent like that. So this is big. Uh, so maybe there's an opportunity here for some. My other thought is, you know, I'll interrupt my own thought, is that aren't they using any AI? Do you know what I mean? any predictive analytics to actually figure this out. The second bullet point is actually interesting also. Even in hindsight, 48% of those surveys say they don't know why customers have churned. Do, do I really need to go into that, mm -hmm. that statement right there? Do I need to rip into that statement? The 48% who don't know, here's an idea. Ask them. Ask your customers why. And they'll tell you exactly why they left. So to say that, I don't know why my customers are leaving. I have no clue. That's because you don't want to know. Sure. Sorry. It, it, that, that's, it's a process issue, isn't it, as opposed to a, it is. a the lack of data existing in the world. I feel like this week in sales, this episode is really just making me mad. I came off of vacation. <laughs> I was feeling pretty good until I got on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Like for every three episodes of this week in sales, Victor has two weeks off to recover. Yeah. 
I got, I got to recover from this thing now. Uh, so anyway, but anyway, uh, Sugar CRM, love to hear your feedback on thisweekinsales.com. Leave us some feedback. Uh, I think these are interesting numbers, though. I really do. I think the, uh, I mean, we, we we picked on the leaders a little bit, but I think there's some there's some truth in that, isn't there, Will, that if, if, if it's not right, if it's not working, then what are you doing about it? And maybe if we were to dig into the data, we find that maybe some of these folks, some of these leaders are actually in a pivot slash transition point sure. on making their CRM work. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, let's be positive, Well, Let's be positive. Well, without Victor, tell us about, we're talking about trends in CRM. Tell us some trends about ADT and the new state of sales. So the new state of sales training shows trends in learning, spending, hours for salespeople. All right, Will, did you know that the average organization spends $2,020 per salesperson on sales training in the last full fiscal or calendar year, not including expenses for an annual sales kickoff meeting, according to the 2021 State of Sales, a new research report sponsored by HighSpot, uh, not to be confused with HubSpot. To reach these conclusions, ATD's researchers analyzed self-reported data, question mark, from 63 organizations representing a wide range of industries, company sizes, and locations. And and this is the part I wanted to highlight, Will, to you. So here's where the money went. Uh, 69% participants directed 69%, companies directed 69% of their sales training expenditures towards internal services. 26% 26% was spent on learning suppliers like you and I, and only 5% went towards tuition reimbursement. These are courses, classes that people take. What do you think of those numbers? Well, first of all, is $2,020 per salesperson on sales training in a year enough, Will? So I'm clearly biased on this okay. because I have okay. a product they cost about two grand. It costs two grand because I've seen similar studies that have come to similar conclusions on this in multiple industries across multiple years. Now, I guess where I'm going with this is right now that number should be five grand. The reimbursement on tuition should be way higher. And because of the pandemic, people need to reskill right this second. People need to relearn what they think they know. People need to go back to fundamentals and get that nailed. And perhaps social selling, perhaps it's learning how to use uh, and understand digital body language and and communicate more effectively over the internet via Skype if we can't go in and see our customers in person, if that's what we were doing prior. Our numbers should be way higher. Companies should be investing into their sales teams right now. Clearly, I'm biased. Clearly, I want to encourage spend because my business uh, kind of relies on it. But the the numbers that surprised me the most was the 5% towards tuition reimbursement. So I... I don't have a massive t- sales team over at sales.org, right? All of our staff, they can spend what they want. And as long as it's within reason, I will, I'll just pay for any training that they want to do. Again, if someone wants to go on a $20,000 a year mastermind, they can get stuffed. But if they want to spend $500, $1,000 on a video editing course, a, whether it's learning design or they want to buy some books, resources, training, whatever it is, I'll fund it because the return on investment is is massive, Right. And the individuals that do want to spend that kind of money, who do want to progress themselves in their career, especially if I'm paying for it, but they're doing the training in their own time, even better, right? I want to encourage that. And they're the individuals that are really going to shine. So that's what really surprised me. Um, what about you, Victor? Did any of those numbers surprise you? The two thousand, I mean, the two thousand dollars surprised me. Well, I'm thinking it has to be more than that. So I would like to see what companies were actually surveyed. Because I, I'd like to think that the large B2B complex sales technology type companies, SaaS companies, enterprise companies would actually invest a little more than that. Well, that seems a little low. That seems more like a, I don't want to say a small, medium-sized business type budget, but that's kind of what it smells like to me. Like they didn't really talk to a lot of bigger companies. Do we I need, could be wrong though. Sorry to interject there. Do we need an extra data point here perhaps on amount spent per salesperson on sales training versus revenue per salesperson generated? Because if you are, I don't know, selling whatever B2C, uh, small B2B deals, and your sales target is 100 grand a year, well, maybe 2 to 5% of your revenue that's generated on training is not an unreasonable amount, right? But like me, if your target's in the millions when I was in medical device sales, and you're, you've got to implement multiple uh, multi-million dollar contracts to even get close because the, just the, the spread of the deals in the marketplace and the kind of cost and benefit of selling lots of small deals versus big ones, then you should be spending. You should you should be having someone actively coach a lot more, right? You should you should be paying for individuals, teams, and and removing all the all cliche stuff we talk about, removing that silo and building a team around the salesperson to help them have help them have success. 
So I, I guess it depends. In my mind, I guess some of this depends on deal size or, or revenue generation versus uh, the training costs themselves. But even in your typical B2C, let's call it low transaction sale scenario, 2000 is still cheap. What are we looking at? 100? I can't do the math in my head, but if I take 2000 divided by 12, that's not a lot of money per month. And so I think the number is ridiculous. Let me ask you this then. Let me, let me turn this there. on its head. And again, I mean, you're clearly massively biased. Mm -hmm. as, un as unbiased as we try and be, we're going to be somewhat biased in this. Mm -hmm. Should salespeople themselves be spending more than two grand a year on their own personal development? So that doesn't necessarily yes. mean buying sales training courses. It might mean uh, books, resources, other things. But should they be doing that? Is that a worthwhile investment for themselves? I think it is. I mean, you know, you and I spend money on books all the time. We'll buy programs where we need to buy. We, we invest in ourselves. You know, every salesperson, I've said this before, should be a walk-in profit center. So if they have to invest something, invest in it. And, and I also say that if the company doesn't invest in your, you, invest in yourself. At the end of the day, you're responsible. But to think that companies only spend that much per salesperson, the lead I, I will say lead because marketing does play an important role in terms of getting leads into the actual funnel. But the people that are closing the deals, and I'll assume that we're talking SDRs, BDRs, account executives, field salespeople, are only getting $2,000 worth of training a year seems a little sketchy to me. <laughs> That's just me. Fair enough. Well, I will I will move things on from there, Victor, because I'm conscious of time. I'll give you the Walter update. Walter has the shits, and so I'm slightly concerned that if, if I overrun and uh, my partner doesn't get back home from work in time, Walter, Walter's not going to have a, a fun time in his crate when he wakes up, uh, which could be about half an hour oh, from now. No. All um, right, all right. So I'll have, I'll, usually I'll chat with you as long as, for as long as we can, but um, poor Walter, is um, he's finding himself, but he's, he's got some runny, uh, runny stool at I the just, moment. Well, I just, I just want first-time listeners to know that Walter is his new dog, and we're going to cut this podcast <laughs> short because he has the shits. <laughs> Got to keep it real, Victor. Got to keep it real. Keep so it real. this next post comes from HubSpot.com. We'll link to this in the show notes over at, uh, over at um, where are we? ThisWeekInSales.com. And it's on about, there's multiple points in this, in this vast uh, survey that HubSpot have done. But there's a few things that I thought, We'll get two men's opinions on, uh, rightly or wrongly. So the survey's entitled, or the title of the survey is, Female salespeople are 23% less likely to be offered financial bonuses than male colleagues. Now, there's, the problem with numbers like this is there's vast reasons why some of this uh, may be. It may be that there's a lot of just random sexist male um, idiots who are sales managers. <laughs> yeah. There may be other variables, but does that number does that number surprise you? Because it surprised me. I I don't know. Will that's my honest answer. I don't know what that number should be. If it is true, twenty three percent. I mean, we don't know the margin of error here and all that good stuff. Uh, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like a very big number. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't seem that big. But then again, I am a male taking a male centric point of view. If it was the other way around, I mean, I yeah, I guess twenty. I mean, it's a quarter, so I guess it is substantial. Sure, and and more context on this, and this is really useful, and I appreciate HubSpot for including this data point as well. Mm. The percentage of women offered financial bonuses dropped from forty-one to thirty-three percent, which is useful data in its own right. But while the but the percentage has only dropped one percent of men, so it's gone from fifty-seven to fifty-six. So it's not mm -hmm. that women are just being offered less financial bonuses than men. There's multiple reasons why that might occur. But the drop for women is far more substantial um, throughout the, the pandemic than the, the men as well. And again, there's, there's all kinds of reasons potentially for this. Um, but yeah, I thought that was that was useful for HubSpot to include the, the, the numbers to, to make a comparison. Because I hate it when studies... I'm doing air quotes there, studies, right? Mm. When Because mm. you can be very manipulative for a lot of this when they only give one data point, when they are trying to juxtapose an idea, put across an opinion, you need the two data points to really make that uh, mm -hmm. data valid, right? By the, way, by the way, that's a good point. They're, they're trying to take a balanced view of this. I love reports that try to do this because there, there's so many nuances to you know why this is happening or why it's not happening. So, But, you know, uh, credit to HubSpot for even having the conversation or have the, uh, you know, the data cojones to have this conversation online. So good for them. Yeah. And I think HubSpot have got, we'll probably cover them more in the next few months as well, because they've got a ton of these reports coming out. It's a, it's a big part of their marketing strategy, I believe, 
to uh, to push these things forward and to really start to become a, what, what we're trying to do. <laughs> they're doing it on a more professional level. Mm-hmm. Um, at a more corporate level, they're trying to illuminate some of these misconceptions or, or issues within the marketplace and, and just highlight them. And then we comment on them. And uh, I was probably slapping their heads as we commented it because we're, we're getting the wrong end yeah. of the stick <laughs> off the time. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I learned to be very careful how I look at these numbers because, you know, uh, during the, I think it was the 90s, 90s and 2000s, uh, more like 90s and 2000s, diversity training, you know, I hate to say it this way, but became like, was pushed to the forefront, became came into vogue, so to speak. And diversity training is very interesting. Now, you know, I'm 100% Hispanic, born in the U.S., but, you know, family's from Puerto Rico. I'm Hispanic, you know, and, and I always hated to label minority. It just always bothered me, right? And I would see these stories about these studies about how Hispanics – you know, and they would do this whole, you know, mm-hmm. you know, compared to a Caucasian white male, you know, you got the Hispanic. And it's interesting because, I mean, I, I'm assuming some of the numbers were real. But in my sphere, in my my sphere of influence, people I saw, there were reasons why, right? And, you know, and they, they varied from education level. They varied from uh, ability to, to, to really communicate with customers. Some people got the spot, not because you were brown, you were kind of white. It wasn't that had anything, nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with... Some person just had more experience within a certain area, and it was more prudent for the business to make a certain decision. For example, I became vice president of Latin America. Why? Why did they skip over the Caucasian white guy? Well, because he couldn't speak Spanish. Okay, so I got the nod. Now, if that guy could speak Spanish, he probably would have gotten the job. So there's all these nuances. So I'm always careful when I read these data points, you know, in terms of saying, well, let's look at the data even closer. So anyway. Sure. I don't know where I was going with that, but <laughs> I just want there's nuances. Let's watch that. <clears throat> anyway. I'll I'll leave it with this, Victor. As a as a privileged white male, six foot three, <laughs> uh, not particularly good looking, but not completely ugly either. There's plenty of people like me who are complete failures, right? <clears throat> just being tall yeah. and white and a dude does not does hey, not. Hey, I got to mention this. We were talking about this before we got online. That you're six three. Mm-hmm. You're taller than me. I'm six two. You're six three. And we were talking about the different studies that came out about how I told you about from a speaker's perspective that that tall speakers, speakers, public speakers over six feet tall, typically garner more money, right? That was a study. And I think you pointed out some other study. What was it? You kind of referenced so it, it's a from a It's from Malcolm Gladwell's <clears throat> book, Blink. CEOs on average <clears throat> are on average is six feet tall. He explains, in the U.S. population, 14.5% of all men are six feet or over, so a relatively small amount versus the rest of the population. But among CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 58% of them are over six foot tall. So that's, and again, we can read into this in many ways as we like, but that suggests you know, that, and, and this has Correlation, been, causation, correlation, and, 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 causation, and I, right? And, and I've looked into this a little bit more, um, just out of interest, since I'm six foot three, right? And they've they've done studies. It's been it's been physically studied. This one data point of they have uh, multiple people, and they just you go into a room. You have a short dude. You have a, a tall dude. And the individuals ask a participant who doesn't realize that they're in the study yet uh, to move seats, to give them this, to to do whatever. And there's more authority given. There's more uh, persuasion uh, from the taller person for whatever reason. And we could go back to um, kind of. What Nithandrol versus human kind of battles, and you're yeah. probably going to listen to the. I'm skinny as heck, right? I'm lanky, but you're probably right. going to listen to the six foot five massive dude when he tells you to do something. If you're small, if you are uh, weaker or, or less strong to that individual, so it probably goes back to uh, the ability to look after yourself back then. It's, it's deeply wired in our brains that you don't want to say no to someone who's tall or particularly muscly or whatever it is because you don't want them to bash your head in with a rock. All right, we've gone down that rabbit hole far enough. I think we'll stop there, and I'll pull it back by saying, I read this great book, and it came out, uh, it didn't come out this week, it came out in uh, September 2020, a few months ago. It's called Demand Side Sales 101, Stop Selling and Help Your Customers Make Progress by Bob Moesta. And I'll just give you some of the snippets, and and I'm going to talk about this book just a little bit, Uh, Will, we'll wrap up. After decades of watching great companies fail, he says, we've come to the conclusion that the focus on knowing more and more about the customers is taking firms, companies in the wrong direction. Hmm. 
And this is what they need, uh, what they really need to hone in on is the progress that the customer is trying to make in a given circumstance, what the customer hopes to accomplish. This is what we've come to call jobs to be done. And I really love this because in the book, it talked about how customers, they want to move from A to B, right? They want to make progress. That's the word they use. And they hire, this is the word they use, they hire products, tools, services, people, whatever they buy to do that job. And what I love about their model that they use in the book is that they talk about how they're trying to get from A to Z and the resistance, which is anxiety and and habits that holds them back. And then what you can do as a salesperson to kind of keep them moving forward and reduce that resistance. And you know me, I'm all about reducing resistance in the markets we've talked about. So it's a great book, highly recommended. Move that to the top list, top of the list rather. I'll check out. That's similar to, um, I think uh, Jim Keenan and Gap Selling has a similar idea here. Or it sells them, sells them org. I frame it up as the buyer has the current reality and has the better future reality that they want to move to. And you've got to bridge them from one place to the other. And in the middle, there's the, uh, the buyer's remor- potential buyer's remorse. There's the, the, the pain of making change and, and changing status quo within the individual and then changing status quo within their colleagues to get them to their current reality to their brighter future reality. So it seems like a, a similar way of uh, visualizing it to that. Am I, am I on the right tracks? You're on the right track. I think, you know, and I've read those books like Gap Selling and some of the other books like The Effortless Experience, another great book. What I like about this one is is specifically they got great examples. And I'll give you one, just a very quick one. Sure. Uh, co- senior couples were having a hard time moving, giving up their home to, to downsize, right? And so they couldn't figure out why. So they do a lot of interviews. And one of the things they figured out, is, and I'm giving you the shortcut here, is that the dining room table was one of the biggest issues they had. They couldn't give up their dining room table when they moved into a smaller place, right? So this construction real estate development company started including a small room so they can put their table, right? There, and they, sh- and they, they shrunk the second bathroom a little smaller. Mm-hmm. So that reduced that resistance. But they also gave them uh, moving service for free. They also gave them two years of storage on property for whatever furniture they didn't have, uh, uh, had left over for free. And this was my favorite part. They created an area within the development where you can sort the furniture you want and discard those you didn't. And it's that whole thought process. So while the market, I think, was going down 49%, had been down, down 49%. They grew 25% just by understanding that the real fear had nothing to do with buying the condo. had everything to do with, I really can't give up this table. There's too much history too many family dinners around that dinner table. And it's a simple example, but you get the idea of where the book is going. And I love the examples they have in the book. Good stuff. Is, is there any definition, whether it's in this or, or in that book or, or without, Victor, of what an adjacent product or service is to the core product that we're offering? Does that make sense? If our, if our product is a laptop, well, maybe we're going to sell more if we include the right adapters, chargers, whatever it is. And they just bundle it. So the, the product is all of it together. But we sell these adjacent services to reduce the the, the fear, the, the 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 tension of buying from the situation to make it uh, a, an easier solution. We we lube the, the the buying process with these extra add-ons, right? Is there is there I mean, a description? I, I, I did actually show your faces. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> is there a description of what these kind of adjacent services are? Is there a way to describe that better than how I have done? Sorry, I got to compose myself after you lube the buying experience. Yeah. Uh, you got to be yeah, visual. It, you got to be visual with these things, Victor. It's very, it's, it's you, very you, visual. You squirted it, it on. It, it's a pump action. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. <laughs> We've lost him. So, yeah. We've lost him. So, anyway. So, bottom, bottom line, man. I, look, bottom line, man. Just make it easier for the customer to buy. They got some great examples. Read the down book. I'm done with you, Will. <laughs> okay. We'll wrap up the show with this. We uh, had uh, 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 a comment from... Jack Yapsun Zeng. Okay. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. Well, that's he a says, tough one. Jack Yapsun Zeng. Yeah. He says, uh, and this is commenting on, I think, not last week, the week before show, or the last episode that we did, where we talked about pre-sales engineers, and you and I didn't know what the mm. heck they were. And then we had a comment from an right. organization that punches us in the right direction. Uh, Jack Yapsun Zeng says, I was a pre-sales engineer at a multinational copier company. The role is excluded dealing with lead management. Uh Role is excluded dealing with lead management, billing issues, sales targets, and commissions. It's a pure technical role 
that identifies problems and solutions from a technical point of view and sells it to the customer. Proof of concept and implementation will be part of pre-sales jobs as well. So it is very literally, I guess, looking at the data, doing market research perhaps, and aligning, mm -hmm. um, and, and perhaps even identifying potential key accounts and that side of things. Um, so thank you for the comment. Uh, that that When you lay it out like that of what you literally did day in, day out, that makes a lot more sense to me. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate that. No, I love feedback like that. So thank you for that. Good stuff. Well, with that, if you do want to offer us feedback, if you, <laughs> if, you if you've got any uh, anecdotes, if you've got any uh, stories you want to share, especially if they include lube, please please send them over over to thisweekinsales.com. We'll get Victor cracking up on every episode moving forward as I uh, include that word that will now go down in infamy on this show. And uh, we will speak to you again on next week's This Week in Sales. That is Victor Antonio, sales legend. My name is Will Barron, founder of salesman.org. And again, we'll speak with you next week on This Week in Sales. Sales.